I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Boom, boom, boom. (laughs) (laughs) Music comes in. Okay. Typically on a podcast, we'll discuss either a director's most well-known movie or a personal favorite chosen by one of us. But today, we're welcoming a very special guest who has brought her own deep cut pick. We're all very glad to welcome the platform agnostic art house queen, the reigning queen of sensual cinema, the queen, period. Isabel <laughs> Sandoval, thank you for joining us. Wow, thank you. You guys did your homework with all that introduction. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> To listeners who might not know her, Isabel is the Filipina director of three independent feature films, Senorita from 2011, Apparition from 2012, which are both currently streaming on the Criterion channel, Lingua Franca from 2019, and now the short film Shangri-La made by the Miu Miu short film series Women's Tales. Isabel is bringing sensuality back to the movies. She also recently was announced as the recipient of the Gallica Trailblazer Award. Yay. Yay. Very <laughs> honored for that one. Your choice for today was Eliza Hitman's debut feature, It Felt Like Love. Mm-hmm. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about your connection with the film and why you picked it? You know, Eliza Hitman's It Felt Like Love, which as you'd mentioned was her debut feature, really stuck with me because it's such an intimate and vulnerable and sensitive depiction of adolescence, especially female adolescents in particular. And I know that's become her signature theme. That's consistent through all her three features, like Beach Rats and most recently, and the film that really won her much-deserved wide acclaim, uh, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Another thing that's remarkable about that film for me is how tactile and subjective and sensorial, you know, it felt like love is. It's a lot of close-ups of faces and hands and bodies that, you know, doesn't feel exploitative, but it really puts you in kind of the perspective and the point of view of, of Lila, the protagonist of Felt Like Love and how she was experiencing the world at this very um, crucial and very pivotal moment of her life as she reaches the cusp between girlhood and womanhood. That's pretty much what Eliza's films have been about. What seems like, you know, from the in the bigger picture, or at least how Hollywood movies tend to depict this coming of age moment, almost always from a very distant, emotionally distant and impartial point of view, like in the hands of a filmmaker like Eliza Hitman, this moment feels so paramount and monumental and cataclysmic in a sense. Um, It really puts you into the mindset of the character. And that's what I love about her films. It's like you're not watching a film, but you're experiencing the world of her characters through their own eyes. Wow, that was so beautifully put. Yeah, very well put. (laughs) I feel like the podcast is done. (laughs) Thanks for listening. (laughs) I I assume that you had seen this multiple times. What was your first encounter with It Felt Like Love? I first saw it, I think, four or five years ago. And I was just really blown away because of how it's a movie not necessarily about plot, you know, or narrative drive, but it's about a feeling. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the reason why the film really resonated with me at that time was because I was also undergoing my gender transition. And in a way, even though this is about a coming of age of a cisgender girl, I connected with the feeling and I guess her sense of vulnerability and wanting that kind of heterosexual male attention. (laughs) Yeah, what appealed to me was how real and honest it was about this burgeoning sexuality of this girl. How that experience can feel both tender and revelatory, but also incredibly terrifying and dangerous. 
considering you know the world that she's moving around in and the men i mean pretty much boys you know right. that she's fi- finding herself attracted to yeah. and yeah just those two kind of opposing forces um those clashing emotions both in terms of the tenderness and the danger of being a teenager I certainly felt scared for her a lot of the time. I think one of the interesting things about the sexuality for Lila is that it's tied up in other questions of belonging to the group of her peers. Mm -hmm. Her desires are sometimes opaque. And I think that's so fascinating. The Directors Guild of America recently released a podcast about Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, uh, which is a conversation between Isa Hitman and Greta Gerwig. And she said something that I think applies to it felt like love and feels like a sort of thesis to me in her work. Mm -hmm. So she said, quote, it was fun to edit in a way because it was like you're documenting thought instead of documenting and covering dialogue, end quote. Yeah. I think she is someone who documents thought. So what did you guys think? (laughs) (laughs) We've shared our love for Never Really, Sometimes, Always on our 2020 review episode, which you can listen to in our deep cut backlogs. But for me, this was my first time viewing It Felt Like Love. I agree as well. I thought that it was very sensitive. I was particularly fascinated by the fragmentation of bodies, uh, torso, loins, hands, face or head, and how Hitman plants the character's emotions into those specific body parts. Mm -hmm. So Ben and Wilson, what were your reactions in watching? This was actually my second time watching It Felt Like Love. Earlier last year, after Never Rarely, Sometimes Always came out, I sort of like went back and watched It Felt Like Love because I had seen Beach Rats previously and I wanted to just complete the filmography because it's hard to do so these days where you have like directors that you're like, okay, you only have like three feature films. I'm going to watch them all (laughs) and be like, I I know all of your work. It was a really powerful first feature. It's very easy for you to emotionally connect with Lila in the way that you're so close with her, so physically close with her with the camera and the way the editing sort of goes in and out of diegetic sound and visuals and non-diegetic like in Lila's thoughts, sound and visuals. And I think it's such a sneaky way that Hitman uses editing to align us with Lila and her her thoughts. But that being said, I, I do think personally this was the most uncomfortable I've been watching a Eliza Hitman movie compared to <laughs> Beach Rats and Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always. Just because Lila's trying to, to put up this front the whole time yeah. when it comes to her sexuality. But in actuality, you, you see how fragile she is. Those two things, like, grinding up against each other and just, like, not... Like, her having to deal with that the whole runtime was very stressful for me as a viewer. But still, like, an incredibly well-made movie with such a great lead performance. The one thing that ties all three of Hitman's features together is how strong all the teen performances are. Ben, what did you think? I mean, it was a bit of hype for me watching this because I really loved Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. I really love that quote you have from Hitman, which really makes sense Like in hindsight watching the film because you don't realize how well she gives you access to Lila's character despite her never really saying what she's thinking. And I think that's really incredible because of the way that she's using the camera as a way to show you what she's thinking, what she's focusing on, what she's looking at, what she's hearing. You can almost see her thought process in the way that she looks at things and the way that she does things. And despite being a person that's not necessarily saying the full picture when she's speaking to her father, to her best friend, you really understand her. And when I was watching it, I was thinking about how it was strange, like looking at this character and how she was putting herself in such a dangerous position. Logically speaking, I was thinking a person like this wouldn't do this. But then for some reason, the film was very able to convince me that this is what Lila wants and this is what she's trying to do. It didn't feel like she was a character that was artificially pushed into a dangerous position. It felt like she and her own motivations brought her to the kind of place that she is. she's going to. I found that really fascinating that there was no tension for me of like believing what was going on. What I found kind of interesting about the story was that there was something almost subversive about the way that she treated the story. You read the synopsis, there's something sensational about the synopsis. Mm -hmm. 
it sounds like it's going to go to a very dark place. And it's not that it doesn't. But the kind of story beats that she chooses kind of upend expectations for me. Mm. Like you think it's going to go to a certain dark place because she's putting herself in the company of these older men who are terrible. And it doesn't go there, but it's still scary and terrifying. And I remember near the end of the film when she leaves the party and I was like, okay, relief. <laughs> She's not going to do that again. And then immediately after, yeah. she goes back and then the film really reaches the kind of most stressful moment yeah. when the three men are yeah. showing themselves to her. And that didn't feel, like I said, artificially pushing her to that. It really f- made sense in a sense of like, she really is feeling the pressures of needing to somehow prove herself right. or to find herself sexually, despite her not actually being emotionally ready. I found the story treatment really fascinating and, and after watching it, more compelling than I thought it would become. Mm-hmm. I agree, Ben. My first movie of Hitman's that I saw was Beach Rats. That's a movie that I really appreciate, though I find the late story murder to feel a bit of an inorganic choice for that character. Whereas, and it felt like love, all of Lila's actions feel organic and as a result of the pressures that she's under. I also want to combine two things that Ben and Wilson are talking about. When Hitman sets up this character so that we understand her emotions without her having to describe them, the result of that is that Lila has no one in the diegesis, no other characters who understand her, but we do. She is isolated from other characters, but she has a strong connection to us. It's a strange and very specific and lonely positioning for this character. Whereas you think about Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, the main character has her cousin. Mm. I think that's interesting. And that also makes it interesting that Never Rarely is the one that has broken out a little bit more. Right. I wonder if it has to do with the feeling that the movie gives. You can sort of compare the friendship, the center of these two movies. Yeah. And it is interesting because I think the one thing that maybe strained believability for me was thinking about this central friendship in It Felt Like Love and wondering why these two were best friends. Mm. And I think that's the part that like I was always having these questions like why, why are these two people friends? Right. They feel so different from each other. They don't seem to have that many things in common. But maybe you don't have to answer the question. Maybe it's just like a friends of convenience thing of growing up together. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking, right? Because like you at around that age of your early teens, your friends are those people that you just see all the time. It's just a friendship out of convenience. Yeah, that you've kind of glommed onto. And then puberty starts to test those bonds. Have you guys, um, I wonder, have you seen um, Bad Girl by Catherine Brillat? I haven't. It's on my radar. Have you? Have either of you seen it, guys? No, I have not. No, I have oh, not. Tell us a bit about it, Isabel. Tell, tell us about it, yes. Yeah, also this kind of very almost microscopic and incredibly frank portrait of female adolescence. Um, it's by this French director. Between fat girl and it felt like love they kind of feel like spiritual cousins so to speak Mm. although i would say that fat girl may be a little more cynical (laughs) (laughs) it has a much grislier (laughs) ending yeah that's what i've heard that's what's sort of scaring me from (laughs) from tackling that film yeah but just watching maybe a scene or two of Fat Girl, you can already tell that this director has a very, very striking you know, voice mm-hmm. and directorial sensibility. These two films are kind of what I would have aspired to make as, a, as an emerging filmmaker, just because of how kind of candid and raw and unfiltered they are about the insecurities and the fragilities that come with being a teenager. Right. And it's also, I think, a very perfect first film. I wouldn't call it like a perfect film, but it's an excellent first feature in that it illustrates what would become the style and the narrative obsessions and fixations of a director like Eliza Hitman. You know, like even the opening shot of Lila against the crashing waves, you know, these are images that get echoed in, say, beach rats, Mm -hmm. you know. And they're also pretty much set in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. I feel like a first feature film, when it's made with complete creative control and autonomy, is already the best indication whether you're working with a filmmaker with considerable talent. 
a filmmaker that you have to pay attention to. For instance, I just saw Blood Simple by the Cohen brothers for the very right. first time yeah. <laughs> a few weeks ago. And you get that feeling of exhilaration. You know, this is a young, hungry filmmaker that's mm. taking a lot of risk and really experimenting with the form and the craft. And in a way, like that's how I felt with It Felt Like Love, although it seems a little more low-key yeah. in that regard. But she is definitely making some bold I think a set of choices that really stuck with me or at least that felt different from what other contemporary American filmmakers are doing. Definitely. It feels like confident filmmaking. Mm. It feels like someone who has been doing it for quite a few years and, and knows what she's doing with the camera and with like her sound design choices. Mm-hmm. It, it's never unsure. Yeah, like you said, very bold choices. I think it, it takes a lot of confidence to try and tell a story without quote-unquote saying so much, like really doing the showing rather than telling kind of thing. Because there's always that worry of the audience not understanding, right? And that's why Hollywood tends to spoon-feed the audience, right? Even in the indie cinema world, you still have films that feel like they tell too much. But this one really is one that really restrains itself, doesn't try to give you too much, leaves many things up to interpretation or like many things just unsaid because it's not important and really focuses on the main story. And I think that does take a lot of confidence. (laughs) I'm thinking about what you said, Isabel, about this simultaneous restraint of style and boldness. Mm -hmm. That makes me think about the spaces that Pittman uses. As a specific technique of how she does that. Mm -hmm. She uses a very verite camera style. It's usually handheld. There's no score. But then she uses the locations very expressively. Uh, And to go into some specific scenes, I'm thinking about something like the dance practice rooms with all the mirrors. Mm -hmm. The bat mitzvah Mm -hmm. space with all the mirrors. The tall grass where she and... Ooh, I'm blanking on the character's name. <laughs> what? Um, Kiara? Kiara or the, Sammy? Sammy? The, the boy. Sammy. The young boy or the... The old boy. The old the, boy. Sammy. Old. Not old boy, but... <laughs> <laughs> was it Sammy? I couldn't remember. Yeah, I think it was Sammy. <laughs> the, the tall grass where Lila goes with Sammy, the older boy who she is displaying some interest in, she's using surroundings to externalize feeling while holding the camera work and the sound at a restrained sort of distance, right? I find that very specific choice of which types of tools she uses to express interiority Mm -hmm. as very smart and disciplined. Talking about the spaces really makes me think about the kind of shot types that she chooses because she doesn't really go that wide yeah. when she shoots. And there's something almost expressionistic about the way that she is filming these things in handheld because you get a sense of a space, but you never really see the space in its totality. Mm, yeah, And there's almost a dreamlike quality to that because you're not really sure exactly where you are. Like the bar mitzvah space, I'm thinking, I'm not, the Sweet 16 party. Like what is that room? There's not really a sense of the whole like hall or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking also of when they go to the theme park, you barely see the theme park. Yeah. And it's mostly through sound design. And I find that really interesting in hindsight when you you, you mentioned that. Because you know that there are in certain kinds of spaces, but you don't really know exactly where. So even if you know which part of Brooklyn, you're not really sure (laughs) what's going on. And so it kind of lives in its own kind of cinematic world, despite being so-called verite, using that kind of cinema verite kind of stylistic choices and then also taking out a lot of realism in a sense from the frame exactly and that's why i feel like you know a film like this is so so deeply empathetic because we're almost always kind of conditioned Mm. and trained to you know look at these characters from a kind of omniscient you know third person objective point of view but here instead we're being made to experience the world through this character's eyes it's incredibly subjective and i feel like Mm -hmm. it makes it both immediate and and intimate at the same time yeah and you can tell like like between this for instance and beach rats her follow-up they're shot by different cinematographers. Um, it felt like love was shot by Sean Porter, and Beach Rats was shot by um, Helene Lovart. Helene Lovart, <laughs> who also shot, you know, never rarely. But 
you can tell, you know, even between the first and second feature that this was made by the same director, you know? Yeah. Mm. And at the end of the day, in terms of the visual language, it's really the director that matters the most. Right. Because, mm. you know, even though you're working with a different cinematographer, this is a director with such a clear and articulate vision of her film that same visual language is going to carry over to a different work, even though they're shot by different cinematographers. Yeah, definitely. I also love how, in a way, the her three features corroborate the, the theory that John Cocteau once said, a director makes the same movie over and over again over the course of their career. <laughs> mm-hmm. and they tend to revisit the same themes and character crises or issues. And this is very much the case with Eliza's filmography. I mean, you can argue that Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always is a sequel to It Felt Like Love if Lila slept with Sammy or one of those, you know, right. deadbeat boys. <laughs> <laughs> those horrible boys. I was wondering if you thought the same about your own body of work, because I know your own body of work has traversed different countries and also different like genres. Time periods. Mm-hmm. And time periods. So I was wondering if you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, what I realized that an artist being true to himself or herself or themselves, especially a filmmaker is that, you know, we're not necessarily in control of the narratives that we come up with for our own work, you know, even though we're, Mm -hmm. you know, arguably in control of the process and that we're choosing what stories we want to tell and, you know, what films we want to make. The kinds of, you know, stories that we do get drawn to or gravitate towards are kind of something from our subconscious, you know, and that they just emerge like with my three features from Senorita, Apparition, Lingo Franca, even though they're set in completely different time periods, different countries, you know, and different main protagonists. Like for instance, in Senorita, my protagonist is a transsex worker and my second feature, it's cloistered Catholic nuns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the furthest you could be, yeah. I didn't know. But I feel like these are all women with secrets and also specifically these are women who are forced to confront or grapple with incredibly private or personal dilemmas within the context of a fraught sociopolitical setting or milieu. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't something conscious that I did by design or by definite intent when I was coming up with these stories. These were just stories that somehow crossed my mind. And now that I've made all three and stepping back from them and trying to view my body of work from a distant, impartial eye. This is kind of the pattern that emerges. Mm-hmm. And that's also something that I'm noticing in my upcoming feature, Tropical Gothic as well. Besides those two things that I pointed out about women with secrets and making personal decisions in problematic or fraught social context, there's also the idea of characters navigating two different worlds. Like with Senorita, since that's essentially a noir film, it's a woman who's trying to leave her past behind and start a new life in a quiet place. Right. But then inevitably her, ca- her past catches up to her. With Lingua Franca, it's about this facade or Alex not being aware that Olivia's trans. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, realizing that she is. So the character is trying to navigate these two different realities, so to speak. And that's also the case with Tropical Gothic in that the main character, who's a native Filipina priestess, decides to pretend, you know, to be possessed by the spirit of her Spanish master's dead wife. That's fucking incredible. (laughs) That's it. You just sold me. You can't see the three of us on the video call, but all of our jaws dropped when you said that. (laughs) That's I want to watch that right now, please. (laughs) Yeah, and so it's kind of like for me as an artist, just noticing and observing myself and my own creative process as if I was a third person and just how fascinating that (laughs) that is to me. I know that sounds weird. Like I'm observing myself, but, you know, especially now that Lingua Franca has been received quite warmly and now I'm really getting a foot into the industry. I'm also wanting to be careful about making choices in my career that allow me to continue evolving and growing as an artist and being true to the art, you know, and not just necessarily make product, you know, or content. 
(laughs) for studios, but at least really make work that allows me to put my creative imprint on them as an artist. That makes perfect sense. If I may be so bold as to offer another Mm -hmm. through line that I see in your movies. Okay. You were talking earlier about how Hitman focuses on the need for guidance in her main characters. Mm -hmm. In your main characters, Isabel, I see a depiction of strength and boldness and Mm -hmm. independence. And I think about, uh, you know, I I don't want to spoil the ending of Ligua Franca for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, Mm -hmm. but I think the little epilogue on there made me feel reassured. That feels important to me. And I was also just sort of thinking about that distinction going into this episode where we're talking about Hitman's work, and I assume we would be talking about your work too. Yeah. Boldness and strength are important qualities in your main characters. Thank you. That's really astute and really accurate observation because I think that's also, you know, even before I realized I was trans, you know, as a kid, you know, the stories that would come up with in my mind are always about women, but not just about women. These women tended to be really independent, you know, and headstrong and had their own minds. And maybe that was unconsciously at that time, the kind of woman that I aspired to be, that I imagined myself being if I had the opportunity to become one. And, you know, Lingua Franca is kind of, especially in its ending, as you mentioned, you know, it starts out seemingly on paper, like a narrative about marginalization, you know, or or victimization about how this woman is oppressed or disempowered as society would choose to see her, especially American society, because we, you know, I think there's just this fixation on victimizing or the perception of victimization when it comes to minorities. But right. At the end of it, you know, we're still able to tap into our inner strength and resilience, you know, and self-determination as you speak. And that's been true of all my characters. There's a steeliness um, when it comes to the resolve in their characters, and that might make them choose means that are less than morally upright or noble, like in Senorita, (laughs) but they're strong and fearless nonetheless, but ultimately complex, yes. you know, and multidimensional. And I know I already talked about it quite a lot in that film comment podcast, but I think it was really, you know, Jane Fonda's character include Brie Daniels in both the writing and her really, I feel like I'm using Twitter speak, iconic. <laughs> <laughs> so far. <laughs> yeah, that kind of gave me a roadmap, yeah. you know, and a path. Like, this is a possible woman. She's kind of been my North Star in that sense. I think a lot about Clute also in the context of which characters get to occupy the soundscape. Mm -hmm. Jane Fonda's character, Brie Daniels, has these extended and really wonderfully written and performed dialogue sequences Mm -hmm. with her therapist where she gets to explain her emotions and her feelings and her experiences. Donald Sutherland the title character of the movie is pretty stoic and silent. And I know which half of that movie I'm more fascinated by. It's Jane Fonda's. She gets to show, again, both her tenderness and her strength. Exactly. And, you know, like both It Felt Like Love and Clute at the time it came out, I feel, you know, showed us portraits of women that we are not used to seeing, especially with Jane Fonda at that point in her career, having come out only just... Three years prior, she did Barbarella, you know? Right. Roger Vadim. And this one where she's completely, you know, just eloquent and fierce. And this is the complete opposite of her kind of rom-com persona, you know, mm-hmm. just a decade prior. And how seemingly modern the portrait is that wasn't afraid to plumb into the darkness and the depths of this complicated woman. In the same way, you know, it felt like love, the triumph of Hitman's filmmaking here is that for a character that's usually an expectably quite inarticulate, you know, (laughs) we're really able to occupy in a way her her consciousness and experience the world that way and feel the world, you know, just because of how tactile the shots are, we can feel the hand kind of touching and grazing the skin Mm. in that sense. Mm. So what Jane Fonda and Clute achieves by dialogue, you know, and just the sheer force of will of her character, Hitman accomplishes through the intimacy of her camera. Very well said. Yeah, wow. I totally agree. I really need to watch Clute now. Oh, Wilson, yeah. you'll love Clute. <laughs> 
sounds like something right up my alley. Yeah. So between her three features, which one did you like the most? Ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I haven't seen Beach Rats, so for me, it's never rarely. Sometimes always. Yeah, Beach Rats is the hottest film. <laughs> for, for me, it's Beach Rats because it is the hottest film. That's... <laughs> okay, so maybe I should watch that. <laughs> Mine, I would have to say, never rarely, sometimes always. Actually, at this point, I want to bring in another quotation from Eliza Hitman from that same DGA podcast interview. Because I think it captures for me what I enjoy the most about all three of her movies, and in particular, never rarely. So she says to Greta Gerwig, quote, the key to a successful movie is having a really incredible AD, assistant director, who will work with you to protect and prioritize the performances, end quote. Protect and prioritize the performances is like such an incredible phrase, yeah. and it absolutely applies to her work. She is so in touch with her performers, and that just makes you feel connected to them as we've been saying without the need for dialogue or explanation she yeah. creates such an intimacy and honors the people in her movies yeah i feel like watching it felt love made me feel like i need to revisit never rarely sometimes always because it felt like love not that it's a bad thing it feels less complete in a sense right it feels a little more skeletal as a story whereas never really sometimes always bowls you over with the central friendship, mm -hmm. the main character struggle when she's trying to get the abortion. There's so much going on that I never, when I first watched it, and it being my first hitman, I never really stopped to really think about like what is she doing. I wasn't really watching it with like my filmmaker let like glasses on. I was just watching it as a viewer. Right. But then with it felt like love, I watched it with the filmmaker glasses on and started seeing all these small things, and I felt like I saw a lot of tiny performative moments that I was. A little struggling to think about whether I saw those moments in Never Rarely. Yeah. And the thing that I remember is this little thing that Lila keeps doing, which is her hair, and she keeps pushing it behind her ear. And it seems like such a non-thing. It's just because her hair is messy and she's tied it up kind of messy and she has bangs. But she's always kind of pushing her hair. And for some reason, that repeated action and almost like a motif for me, I don't think I'm reading too much into it, but like every time I see her do it, it re- iterated how premature her development is mm. emotionally in this time of her life because there's something kind of not innocent but just young feeling about that action and about that choice of making her hair that way of her wearing the swimsuit all the time that really felt like little details and little choices that Hitman had chosen to really push this character as a as a real human being right on the screen and I really want to think about how she's doing that with the two characters in yeah. Never Rarely as well. Well, I feel like it's a little different because with Never Rarely sometimes always you have these two characters that are sort of like thrown into this new environment versus it felt like love and beach rats where you sort of like follow a day to day and like what what feels natural for these characters to be doing. Mm. So then it would feel more like lived in and naturalistic, like their actions that are taken by the characters. Oh, so you're saying because Never Rarely has that kind of strong sense. It's almost like a strong plot. Yeah, like sense, a plot pull. Yeah. Right. That's a goal. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it felt like it has a plot goal. Like <laughs> it's kind of a character goal. Yeah. Not Maybe not the best one. Yes, yes. <laughs> maybe not. Ben, you bringing up the swimsuit reminds me of something which I wanted to toss out there. There's a photographer named Renika Dijkstra who is well known for this series of photographs that had an exhibit at the Guggenheim a number of years ago. They're photos of early adolescents on the beach wearing swimsuits and they're terribly awkward. Like they're all positioned very... Mm kind of uncomfortably with their bodies. And I would be surprised if Hitman has not seen those photographs. Oh yeah, I'm looking at them right now. They look <laughs> very similar. Right? Like the there's a discomfort with the body that makes you feel uncomfortable with your own body looking at it. Wait, I need to look at these. <laughs> <laughs> Isabel, I was wondering, because you chose to set Lingua Franca in Brooklyn, I was wondering if you... If you took anything from Hitman's movies um, as like tips about shooting in Brooklyn or like the story that you were telling. I think my decision to choose, you know, Brighton Beach and Coney Island as uh, right. the setting for Lingua Franca has more to do with um, James Gray, ah. James Gray's work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Influence on me, like you specifically Lovers with Joaquin Phoenix and Gwyneth Paltrow that was set in Brighton Beach. Uh. 
Mm-hmm. Also, have any of you seen that? I've only seen Ad Astra and The Immigrant. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've seen those two and then, like, um, he did The Lost City one, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, The Lost City of Z. Yeah. yeah, it was more a very mild homage to um, James Grace work set in in brighton beach um and that's kind of like you know both reserved but also quite lush and romantic yeah and i live in brooklyn until june last year and it's so fascinating to me how in brooklyn you know each ethnic community slash neighborhood has their distinct personality and character over there i mean mm-hmm. you know, where i was living in crown heights which is like a more hip gentrified <laughs> neighborhood in Brooklyn were surrounded by Orthodox and Hasidic Jews, you know, the West African slash Caribbean um, community. And just half an hour south of me by subway, there's Brighton Beach, which is Russian Jewish and also has a really, really unique character to it. It's like being in a different country, period, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So it's more James Gray, but Eliza Hitman's work left in a perhaps unconscious imprint on me because now I'm also realizing that Lingo Franca is in certain scenes quite tactile and intimate and really puts mm-hmm. you in the mindset yeah. and the consciousness of this character. Um, I would call both It Felt Like Love and in certain passages in Lingo Franca impressionistic because it's not mm-hmm. like an objective omniscient document or chronicle of these characters and their worlds, but they're very subjective. You know, it's very emotional. Like Lingua Franca is a romantic drama that's tinged in an ease and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that passage in It Felt Like Love, I would, I would call it maybe the climactic passage where she's there with this, you know, those three boys yeah. are some of the most, for me at least, the most emotionally tense Mm-hmm. and terrifying moments for me in cinema, especially because I was truly empathizing with Lila, you know, at that point. Yeah. And that's the power of filmmaking that it's yeah. at its purest. I know yeah, I asked your guys earlier what your favorite Eliza Hitman movie is. And for me, and this is kind of my general answer, I prefer first films. Mm-hmm. And that's very much the case as well with Eliza. I mean never rarely, sometimes always is an incredible piece of filmmaking. But I tend to be biased uh, when it comes to first films because I feel like they're the rawest and purest and most uncompromised expressions and articulations of a filmmaker's ideas when they're just trying to make films with complete freedom and they're taking a lot of risks and not necessarily making films that would have designed to appeal to a broader slash more commercial audience. It's like this filmmaker's id manifested rather than, you know, being sanded down to accommodate commercial interests. And I'm not saying that never rarely, sometimes always feels that way. Right. Eliza Hitman is still very much a kind of pure auteur, so to speak, mm-hmm. like Claire Denis, Lucretia Martel, right. et cetera. But here, mm-hmm. you know, what people might consider like flaws or imperfections in the storytelling, the idiosyncratic choices that are made here feel purely Eliza, you know, and that's the kind of candor and honesty I would like to see in a filmmaker's work. Just the audacity of making films for their own edification and gratification. Do you think about your own work that way? Like, do you think of Senorita in that way too? Like, like it being your first feature, having that special place, like as a filmmaker rather than as somebody watching them? Yeah, I mean... You know, I mean, I think a few years after I made Apparition, it was kind of like, oh my God, Senorita makes me cringe. You know, there was like three <laughs> yeah. years where <laughs> yeah. I could not allow myself to sit through that movie again. I think it's also because I transitioned and like, you know, just hearing my voice in Senorita, it was like, my God, mm-hmm. my voice so low. But, you know, now I've kind of become fond of it again. <laughs> <laughs> it's come back around. Yeah. You know, it's part of my growth and evolution as a filmmaker. Like, this is where I started. And, as with It Felt Like Love, although in a very different way, it felt like bold and uncompromised that I was kind of just not kind of skimping on my ideas. I was trying out ideas that inspired me and I was shameless about the influences that I had in making in making that film because I didn't go to film school. So mm-hmm. I felt I was really just watching works of world cinema. I remember telling my musical score, I want the score for Senior to sound exactly like in the mood for love. <laughs> 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 Which if you'd noticed, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. 
Give me that Umebayashi like sequence over and over again. (laughs) Exactly. And you know how in a certain way you could still tell that there might be a through line between Senorita and Lingo Franca. Mm -hmm. And especially when a filmmaker chooses for their first work, a genre-inflected work or a, a you know a film that's really kind of anchored in a particular genre, it's interesting to see the deviations and its subversions and the rules that they break in making that film. And it's in these deviations that you can see that sensibility, that unique, distinct voice mm-hmm. of the filmmaker coming through. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes Definitely. complete sense. I like never thought about first features that way i always thought about them being like oh these are the directors like finding their footing like figuring things out but it makes so much sense that they're fresh this is like what they want to tell like from their heart with no other influences or i guess other forces pushing or pulling them in either direction yeah i mean it's kind of like a child in that they are not necessarily concerned with you know, decorum or <laughs> social societal approval. These are completely free and unbridled, you know, and not concerned with rules and conventions and formula. But subsequent features, as the budget becomes, you know, bigger, there are a lot more creative pressures, you know, and the pressures to conform mm-hmm. that makes them in a way somewhat compromised and not necessarily the purest expressions of an artist's creativity. But that's just my own personal opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that's why like Blood Simple, for instance, is just extraordinary to me um, because this is the Coen's most purely creative. And you can tell that these filmmakers are having just so much fun inventing their own cinematic and visual language Hmm. with Blood Simple and Eliza Hitman with It Felt Like Love as well. I'm not sure if she saw Fat Girl by Braillot, but yeah, first films are both the purest expressions of an artist's own emerging sensibility, but also kind of a map of the films and directors that have influenced this artist. Right. That's a great point. I was definitely thinking about Lynn Ramsey and Ratcatcher as I watched It Felt Like Love. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about uh, Robert Bresson in terms of separating body parts, focus yeah. on hands. Mm-hmm. And I think the merit in subsequent features tends to be about whether this filmmaker has matured enough to kind of truly absorb and incorporate these influences, but transmute them in a way that becomes distinctly and undeniably her own. You know, it doesn't just seem like a blind homage or a nod to a cinematic influence. Like you can tell that these influences are there, but that artist has processed them and also transformed them enough to incorporate these different separate, sometimes opposing influences into her own emerging style. Right. Sort of like how like Wong Kar Wai goes from like the crime film in his tears go by and sort of like distills what he wants to focus on, which is the love and the romance and right. the, the yearning, which he focuses on later in his career. Oh, or as Isabel put it on Twitter today, focusing on hot people doing hot things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, you're all really caught up on Twitter. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I also was just revisiting Fellini, for instance, um, quite recently. Criterion put out Essential Fellini. And I feel like I'm closest to Fellini at this point in my career because he also started out with works that were influenced by post-war Italian neorealism, like Rossellini. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few features in, he kind of really broke off and explored worlds that are more dreamlike and surreal and lush. Yeah. Yeah. Half and La Dolce Vita was a lot more glamorous than his earlier works. Right. Was his first feature I Vitaloni or was it a was it was there one before that? Um, I think it's Variety Lights, but oh, that's okay. co-directed with someone. But even then you could already kind of see his pet themes, you know. It's about right. a troupe of traveling theater actors and kind of uh-huh. the adventures and shenanigans that they find themselves in. <laughs> oh. And that's been kind of his his pet theme as well, like with La Strada, you know, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. with Julieta Messina, his wife. Um, oh, yeah. Incredible actress. I'm finding this really interesting to think about because it feels like with filmmakers, 
like from your first feature onwards, you either become more of yourself, honed, or you become more like everyone else and become less interesting. Oh, because exactly. I feel like there's two ways of going through your career, right? Either you become more like everyone else and then just become more palatable, but maybe less interesting. Exactly. Or you hone your craft, like hone all the things, your own personal things, so that you become more of yourself. I'm just repeating myself, but yeah. And I feel like, oh man, a lot of the like a lot of the directors we've looked at on the podcast, we kind of have that sense, you know, where the deep cut pick and the popular pick, you kind of see them become more of themselves. Yeah. Except for some of them, maybe. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'd argue that it is more challenging for filmmakers and tours in the American system, just because you know there really isn't an inter- financial infrastructure or a cultural mandate to support artists mm. doing real mm. art compared to yeah. to in Europe where you know countries like France and Germany really provide funding for yeah artists of different backgrounds including filmmakers to just produce work they want to make that's why Claire Denis is from France, you know? The pressure might tell. There are far more tours that continue to operate today from Europe than it is in the US, unless the films that they make have some commercial appeal. Right. There's, I'm not saying that there's a lack of talent in American filmmakers. There's just not the system, you know, the support system that allows right. for autourism to really thrive. Right. I think that's mm-hmm. why we've seen so many indie darlings drift over to franchise filmmaking and mm-hmm. now I think we're at the point where I'm starting to ask what are their follow-up projects going to be are they going to go more personal or are they going to imbue big movie making with their personality or are they as Ben notes just going to stick with big movie making my preference goes in descending order of that list <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would love to see them use their clout to make personal things yeah. we'll see i always trust that hitman is going to stay personal though i think i can count on that yes yeah i'm very very thrilled that never really sometimes always broke out you know as, as big for eliza as mm. it did because i really do consider her one of the major american you know contemporary american filmmakers that we have and her latest film has elevated her status to that of a true tour that she can definitely attract high profile talent mm-hmm. in whatever future project that she finds herself making and I'm excited for her. Agreed. If I may ask one question as a filmmaker looking for advice mm-hmm. and looking at your work with Lingua Franca and Senorita, seeing as you acted in those as well as directed them, yeah. because I am... <laughs> developing a short film that I'm thinking of acting in myself. And I just want to know if you have advice about how to do that in the most intelligent way, because I have never had to direct myself in front of camera. For me... Okay, let me ask you, do you really want to act in this thing? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Um, I feel like I have to. I mean, the story is very personal and I... Yeah, and so it's it's very difficult to see somebody else trying to be myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, for me, just because I also felt like, felt that it was right for me to mm. act in the film. And I knew that, you know, as a writer-director, the main protagonist of my film will somehow be an alter ego or kind of a psychological double for me. Mm. So it felt organic for me to play that role. I think that's really the most important factor if, it feels right to you. Go by your gut instinct. That's what I mm. went with. And you'll know that playing this role is not necessarily a different task from you directing or writing the mm-hmm. film because your one job is to make a film that has multiple aspects and facets to it. And, you know, when you play the main protagonist, you're just making sure that you're able to translate your vision, you know, from the page mm-hmm. to the screen as faithfully and with as little compromise as yeah. possible. You're bringing the truth of your screenplay to the screen. And that's what you just need to keep in mind. And again, especially if it's just your first work, mm-hmm. as long as you feel like it's the most honest and candid and unfiltered expression of your artistry and creativity, then you should go for it. I think the reason why ultimately... Despite its flaws, Senorita came out feeling like a bold, idiosyncratic work is that I believed in myself. Mm. That does sound like Oprah, but <laughs> <laughs> that's what's most important is that not necessarily to think of like what other people are going to say. If you feel that it's right for you to do it, then you should definitely do it. 
Thank you. That just gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that gave me a lot of confidence, yeah. and I'm not even acting in something I'm directing. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Good luck. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> that means so much to me. You have no idea. Oh. I'm still going to judge you very harshly when I watch your show. Oh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> please do. Please do. <laughs> yeah, rate it on Letterboxd. Like, Honestly, right? <laughs> punches. I'm just so exhilarated and grateful that I've had the chance to talk about a film that's been so dear to me personally in the last mm. few years and that I got to talk about it with you guys and how eloquent and smart this conversation has been thanks to you. Oh my God. Oh. I, Isabel, <laughs> it's entirely you, thanks well. to you. We are, we're really honored <laughs> yeah. that you joined us today. Thank you. Of course. But yeah, thank you so much, Isabel, for coming on the podcast. Maybe just spend some time if you want to plug something or tell people where they can watch your movies. Both my first two features, Senorita Apparition on the Criterion Channel, um, Lingo Franca is on Netflix in North America for now. But Shangri-La, my short film from Yumi Women's Tales, can be seen on the Mimi YouTube channel or on movie. Yes. Watch Shangri-La. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And when can we hear about Tropical Gothic? Yes. When can we see that? <laughs> Hopefully na- late next year. Fingers oh, great. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's incredible. Yeah, Isabel, this, your work just means a lot to me as a half-Filipino budding filmmaker. And it makes me very proud to be a Filipino. Yeah. <laughs> your work just really speaks to me in a lot of different ways. So, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. That warms my heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. And I'm Isabel. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Great. Yay, we did it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me.